Welcome to Money MD, where the money doctors are in the house. We're giving out prescriptions for better financial health and making smart decisions with your money. We give common sense solutions to your complex problems. And now, here are the doctors. John, we're marching on to fall here. No, the weather yeah. is uh, more football too. Yeah, more football it never stops. So Carolina has a cakewalk. That should and y'all y'all actually have a tough game. Do we Who Texas A and M? Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. That's, that's that's for that's, sure. That's, that's one of our game. harder games this year. Yeah. It is. It is. So that should uh, be interesting. In the middle of it, we we've, we've got another week before we uh, welcome Alabama in. That will so. be uh, an interesting. Interesting interesting challenge for you guys. Good good word. word. (laughs) No doubt. Speaking of interesting, we have an interesting show lined up today. You know, we got the three investment mistakes to avoid. Yeah, this is a quote by Warren Buffett. It's great. It's good to learn from your mistakes, Steve, but it's better to learn from other people's mistakes. Yes, (laughs) I agree with that. We've got a couple of mistakes that you're going to want to make sure you don't make in your investing life. Your opportunity to learn from other people's mistakes. That's That's right. right. And then we're going to follow that up with the seven inherited IRA traps. Mm. Um, Yes, if you inherit IRA, you know, from your mom or your parents or anybody, um, there are some tricky rules associated with that. And uh, you want to avoid stepping in one of those potholes, one of those traps with IRAs. So we're going to cover that. I think it should be very interesting. Um, By the way, though, I'm Steve Marbert. I'm a certified financial planner and an investment advisor with over 23 years experience of providing financial planning and investment advice. And I'm John Travis, also a Dave Ramsey Smart Vester Pro. I have an MBA in finance and have been helping corporations and individuals with planning for over 27 years. We're excited to have you listen to us today on our weekly show. Our podcast up every Friday afternoon. Yeah, check out our website, moneymd.net. We have a link to the podcast. I uh, also have a lot of tools on the, the website, Facebook page. We put a, a video out there every single week and also a Twitter handle, MoneyMD. Also, email us your questions. We'd love to hear from you. You can email us directly at info at moneymd.net. Well, John, we're going to start off here with the financial fact of the week. Yes, Steve, this is um, kind of talking about markets. And one of the facts that we know is that uh, markets are down about 25% of the time. And we saw a down year in 2018. And, um, you know, it's it can be frustrating when you have a down year, certainly. But also on the flip side, as you the markets have you know recovered some, um, people start getting a little antsy about, well, it hasn't recovered all the way. So we're going to go through some math today, right? Yeah. And so I, we're just going to throw out some numbers. If you're down 33%, which is a very big year, a right? Third, a yeah. third, and and didn't happen in 2018, but it certainly happened in 2008. So you're down 33%. You have to make 50% in order to recover Back to even. Back to even. And so that, the math is a little bit a little bit skewed because yeah. it's it's it works in the inverse. It is, it is. And so that can that fifty percent can take a year or two or three. And so you're sitting there looking after a down year, two years later, three years later, and you haven't made any quote money. Well, that's part of the process. I mean, there are negative years in the in the process, and you just got to understand that this is a long term process. It's a long term uh, goal uh, for most people, and um, you, you know the negative years you're putting money in, you're you're pulling, you're putting in at a cheaper price, right? It right. turns out to be a good thing, right? But keep in mind, markets historically do make a positive return. They do make that recovery, no matter how big it is. Even in the Great Depression, if you were diversified, it was down 86%, which mm-hmm. is unfathomable. You know, the, the Dow was back in 1932, June 1932. 
it if you were diversified, you would have fully recovered in about four and a half years. Right. right. So it can recover. It can make whatever it takes to recover, and it historically has. The markets, the S and P five hundred's averaged like ten percent a year over the last eighty years. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, that's an annualized return, yeah. too. So yeah. it has made those recoveries, but you got to be patient. And, of course, past performance doesn't predict. We're not trying to predict here. We're just looking back at history a little bit. But it does take patience. The markets, I mean, even being down 10%, you know, it, you know, to yeah. be up 10%, you still wouldn't be whole right. the you next year. About 11. That's right. Back there, so, so it, you know, sometimes you can go through a, a two- or three-year period where you haven't made money, but... As you said, over time, it historically has done very well. So that's right. Take heart. That's right. The point here. As long as you're diversified. As long as you're diversified. Good, good uh, fact of the week, and that brings us up to our next topic here, and that is the three investing mistakes to avoid. Yeah, this is from Ben Johnson from Morningstar, and uh, as we as we said in the lead off here, Warren Buffett had a, a neat quote. It says, "If you're, it's good to learn from your mistakes, but it's better to learn from other people's mistakes." And Steve, we see investors spend a massive amount of time trying to make all the right moves and you know, the collective effort dedicated to picking good stocks or, or managers or sectors and so on is immense. And uh, there are countless books and magazines and news- newsletters, podcasts, you know, uh, dedicated to helping investors make the best possible decisions when it comes to selecting and managing investments. And, and far less energy and commentary is committed to the topic of how not to make the wrong moves. And, and so these are three uh, things that are related to behavioral issues um, that have been hardwired into us over centuries. So we're going to kind of dive into those. And the first one is mistake number one is trying to control things you can't. Yeah, that's exactly right. That's a good um, one. That's a really good one. You know, um, you know. So you got global markets, right? Uh, countless factors that drive global markets. Randomness rules, uh, predicting uh, how these myriad of, of, of variables will influence security prices is impossible. And thinking otherwise is foolish. I mean, deep down, we all know this, but we prognosticate nonetheless. And investors cannot control the path of interest rates or productivity or you know the level of Amazon stock price and so on. Um, but a lot of times we act as though we can, and the illusion of control is per- pervasive. It, in some ways, uh, it, it forms this, you know, self-preservation, and it's linked to positive mental health. But as investors, it can be hazardous to our wealth if we if we get involved in this cycle. That's right. What the illusion of control does is it leads to overconfidence, and overconfidence is a very dangerous thing when it comes to investing. Um, cause that leads to over trading, you know, you, you start trading because you think you know what the future is going to hold. You think you have an inkling of where the markets are going, where a stock's going, um, over trading will almost inevitably leave you short of meeting your goals. Um, it can lead to a disaster. Um, the most, uh, meaningful levers that we can pull to affect our investment outcomes are the, the following things. Here's a following list here. The first one is to save. Of course, sock away as much as you can. The earlier you begin saving, the better. The more time it gives you for that compounding returns, mm-hmm. work their magic, the eighth wonder of the world. Um, and, you know, as it buys you more time, that, that works in your favor. And, you know, it, every if you made a 7% return, it would double your investments in about 10 years. Mm-hmm. Um, if you made a 10% return, about seven years. So you got to let that work for you. 
as long as possible. So young people, you know, you got to get started early. Yeah. Save and, and then invest and, and invest in mutual funds in the market, be diversified. Um, and uh, this may seem obvious, but this is the biggest determinant of your investment uh, success. It's not the stocks or the funds that you pick. It's how you allocate your assets. Um, you know, but it's really, you know, being in the market. Um, if you're in the stock market, there's an old saying, it's time in the market, not timing the market. So making sure you're invested and you stay invested is so important. Make sure your al- uh, assets are allocated appropriately. Um, you know, asset allocation does matter. Um, you know, how you allocate your assets certainly depends on your goals and your time horizon and also your risk level. Um, but, you know, that's a piece of the puzzle here. And then also trying to minimize cost, uh, whether it be, you know, fees, commission, taxes. Um, you got to make sure that you're, you're sensitive to that. You understand what that looks like because um, that does impact the returns. That's right. The last one here is avoid taxes. Um, no, we didn't say evade taxes, so we're not <laughs> talking about anything illegal here. Um, but, you know, you, you can't control tax policy, but you can respond to it. You can make sure that you're making wise decisions. You're not, you know, paying taxes on on, on investments that you don't need to. Um, so there are countless things that investors can't control, but we often, you know, kid ourselves thinking that we can. But you can make wise moves in terms of tax policy. So mistake number one is trying to control things you can't. you got to keep that in mind. Number, mistake number two, and Steve, this is, I know you see this all the time. I do as well, but recency bias. Um, recency bias describes the our tendency to extrapolate our recent experience into the future. Stocks have been marching higher for the better part of a decade, so surely they'll only continue to climb, right? Or maybe this asset class, like large U.S. stocks, is going to go up continuously. Well, that's not how it works. Recency bias, it can become particularly dangerous in in bear markets. Falling stock prices can lead to panic selling. Shell-shocked investors can really be slow to get back in once the market rebounds, and there's plenty of evidence that the psychological effects of the global financial crisis back in 2007 and 8 it still lingers today. Um, you know, there's a lot of people that are still on the sidelines for much of that recovery. And re- remember, whether or not you're invested is a most, uh, you know, obvious, obvious determinant of your outcome. So sitting out a nearly decade-long rally has been a serious setback for many people because they thought it was going to continue. And we actually see that now, right? There's been sectors yep. of the markets that have done exceptionally well. People are betting everything on that to continue. Well, no one can tell the future, but things do tend to come back to the mean. Eventually. That's right. That's right. So how can we control our recency bias? Um, Well, the first step is to recognize it exists. Um, But that alone isn't enough. I mean, inevitably, we're going to be lured into the serene song of this time. It's different. I've heard that one. You know, it's a new economy. We heard that, you know, 20 years ago. I mean, it's true that every zig and zag in the market is driven by these distinct factors, you know, from the zigs to the zags that preceded it. And so, yes, technically speaking, every time is different. Um, but what's also true is that the long-term trend in the market has been positive for more than a century. You know, markets grow as economies grow and as corporate earnings grow. And that trend has persisted through countless crises. And by all counts, it will continue in the future. Um, so, 
you know, you got to keep it all in perspective. Yeah. Mistake number three here is uh, paying too much attention. That's interesting. One of uh, you know, our most meaningful investment milestones for most of us are decades away. Even if you're about to retire, you know, you've got hopefully decades in retirement. Uh, but our attention is monopolized by the moment. Paying too much attention to our investments today can put us at risk for missing goals that are years away. And, you know, one of the chief um, side effects of monitoring our investments too closely is that it fuels our aversion to loss. The theory is that we feel greater pain from losses than we experience pleasure from gains of equal magnitude. So the the, the tie to ev- evolution is that Fred Flintstone had a far greater incentive to avoid being mauled by the saber-toothed tiger <laughs> than to order another oversized rack of ribs from his already toppled car, right? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, right? Interesting example. It is, it is. But loss aversion can have a meaningful impact on investor behavior. I mean, the likelihood of losses in any given one-year period is far greater than the probability of losing money over the, the longer horizon. But in a recent study, it found that annual reviews led investors to behave as if their investment horizon was a year out, not 10, 20, or 30. And this leads many to take less risk by allocating less to stocks, and um, they sometimes don't hit their goals. So, you know, being focused on the here and now, and there's so much information, it's daily now, it's to the minute right. with tweets and everything. And, it, you know, if, if you pay too much attention, it will absolutely scare you. That's exactly <laughs> right. So, I mean, the easiest way or the best way to really shake this behavior is to to stop paying so much attention to the markets in our portfolios. Um, I know that sounds counterintuitive because people think they should be watching it. They should be, you know, doing something about it. Um, But the truth is, if you're diversified and you're set up for the long term, you trying to act on every new piece of information is is a mistake and it's going to hurt you. Um, the noise will also help you to, to diminish the illusion of control and the recency bias if you tune out that noise. Um, so while it's tough to put the market on mute, um, you know, we, we should all we would be better served by tuning out a bit, maybe just looking at it monthly or quarterly, but stop dwelling on every move of the market. Yeah. So in conclusion, I mean, we, we do spend as a society a lot of time on making smart decisions with our money. And, and part of that's warranted. But, you know, um, we could probably add as much value, if not more, by avoiding making these mistakes. So the most costly areas we make as investments tend to be mental ones. I mean, being aware of our biases is an, really an important first step in preventing these errors. And uh, but awareness alone will not suffice. So you know, you got to focus on the, those things that you can, you know, control. And that's one reason why people do work with us and other advisors is they have a different perspective. And, um, you know, we'll see a headline one day that says one thing and the next day it'll say exactly the opposite. So i right. um, trying to keep people kind of focused on those long-term goals because they're short-term swings. They're there today. They always have been historically. And you just got to have a plan and a process to handle those and focus long-term. Exactly. So great lessons. Good, good topic. And that leads us up here to our next thing. And that is the question of the week. The question is, is a million dollars enough for retirement? And you know, answer is it depends. Do you have any um, a lot of money? It is a lot. It is a lot. You can take, you know, 40 to 50,000 from that, depending on your age and your risk level. So if that's enough to live on, then the answer is yes. Uh, If you have pensions is another piece of the puzzle. Do you have a mortgage? What other debt do you have? So it really is individually specific. And what we do see is most of the time someone that has a million dollars is fairly comfortable, right? Gives them some some income. They add Social Security to that. 
Depends on the situation, though. If they have pension, certainly helps. If they have no debt, then that's another you know positive step as well. Yeah, it totally depends on your individual situation. I mean, everybody has different things. And if you're going into retirement with a big mortgage or something, you know, it might not be enough. So uh, it just depends. That's why you need to do a plan. You know, you need to have a retirement plan that takes all those factors into account, that runs projections under different scenarios, um, different, you know, rates of return, um, includes inflation, and, you know, looks at all your income sources and Social Security and factors in there and see how long it lasts. See mm-hmm. if it is enough to get you through retirement. Um, that's the real answer to the question. Yeah, we ha- happen to have a calculator on our we website. Do. We do. You so, can get a good snapshot right. just by going to our website. And, and, and Yeah, moneymd.net. You can go check that out. Yeah, absolutely. That's a great starting point. Okay, good topic. And that leads up to our last topic here, and that is the seven inherited IRA traps. Um, yeah, this is really important, John. And this is out of a... A recent article from bankrate.com. But when somebody leaves you an IRA account um, or some kind of 401k account or retirement plan, um, you can find yourself in kind of a tricky three-way intersection of estate planning, financial planning, and tax planning. And one wrong decision with an inherited account like this can lead to expensive consequences. And good luck trying to persuade the IRS to give you a mulligan on that. Yeah, they don't give mulligans they too often. They don't give mulligans at all. No breakfast ball for you. Yeah. So, <laughs> you know, attorney uh, here that contributed this article, Natalie um, Choate, Choate, I guess. Sounds good. She's the author of A Retirement Plan Guide, Life and Death Planning for Retirement Benefits. She advises IRA beneficiaries to do nothing until they met with a financial advisor who can explain their options. Um, to the worst thing to do, she says, would be to cash out of the plan, put it in your account, then go see your advisor and say, now what do I do? Um, you know, at that point you're in trouble, you know, there's no turning back. So before that happens, learn these eight must know options for handling an inherited IRA. Yeah. The first one is, is, um, you have a choice five-year rule or a stretch IRA, uh, the money in an inherited IRA must be taken out eventually, right? Except in some cases when the beneficiary is is the widow or widower of the deceased. But a non-spouse beneficiary basically has two options for liquidating the account. Um, they can choose to take distributions over their life expectancy. That's known as a stretch option. And it leaves the uh, funds in the IRA as long as possible and defers paying those taxes. So Younger person probably makes sense to do that. Um, they can also liquidate the account within five years of the original owner's death. So, you know, if you have five hundred thousand in there over five years, that's a hundred grand a year. Probably going to put you in a higher tax bracket. So that's the tax planning piece of it. You got to make sure you understand, you know, wh- what's going to suit you best. Yeah. So you have those two options <laughs> now. I mean, the stretch IRA option is the tax equivalent of a treasure at the end of a rainbow. And and that really should always be your first option is to do the stretch IRA because you can always take it out faster, mm-hmm. okay? Um, so you can always decide to take it out later, but you got to take that RMD the first year to have that option of doing the stretch IRA. Um, so hidden beneath the layers of rules and red tape is the ability to shelter the funds from taxation while they grow for decades. In the case of a Roth IRA, accumulate tax-free, um, you know, earnings um, down the road. Um, they continue that. So, but one slip up by a beneficiary, even the benefactor before death, um, and that gem can be lost forever. Mm-hmm. Um, 
So they're pointing out, you know, interesting option here. And, and, and the obvious answer is you need to take the stretch IRA option um, when you inherit an IRA, an IRA like this um, and you're not the spouse of, of the yep. deceased. So instead, the beneficiary would be forced to take the money out under the five-year rule if they don't take the RMD. So the point is you have to take the RMD to have the stretch IRA option. The second one here, though, um, is talking about spouses. Um, you know, the spouse kind of gets the jackpot. So whenever spouses inherit an IRA, they can basically take the account and treat it exactly as their own IRA. Um, so if your husband passed away, you would inherit the IRA. You'd treat it exactly as your own. And if you were not invested or interested in taking the money out at that time, you could let it grow um, tax deferred in your IRA until you reach age 70 and a half. And if the spouse inherits a Roth IRA, there's no distributions that are required ever. Um, but you know, there is the additional wrinkle in that if the spouse elects to treat the account as their own, any distributions taken before age 59 and a half could be subject to the 10% withdrawal penalty. So that means that spouses are able to roll an IRA into their own IRA, um, that they inherit for themselves, it basically resets everything. So now they're able to name their own beneficiaries um, that will succeed them. They're able to deal with it as if it's their own. Right. The only caveat is you can't take the money out without a penalty before age 59 and a half. Yeah, that's right. And another here on the another trap is, um, you know, non-spouse beneficiaries must act soon. You can't procrastinate. In order to choose the stretch option, the beneficiary must take out the yearly required minimum distributions, also known as an RMD, based on his or her own life expectancy. And uh, there's a cutoff date for taking the first withdrawal. You have to take it out in the next calendar year by December the 31st. Um, of the calendar year following the year that the descendant passed away. So it gets a little tricky. Uh, if you miss that date, you default back to the five-year rule. And the takeaway for inheritors is don't rush to make decisions, but do be aware that time is running out. And uh, I think you know, sitting down with an advisor, someone who deals with this a lot, would certainly be uh, would potentially helpful to you. Absolutely. And the biggest pitfall, what you just mentioned about taking the RMD for non-spousal IRAs or somebody that has to take an RMD, <laughs> is the first-year IRA, is the RMD, the RMD for the year of death, um, because that's another hurdle for beneficiaries of, of regular IRAs, and it's figuring out if the benefactor had taken their his or her RMD in the year of their death. So let's say your father dies, you know, in January, and they leave, you know, leave you his IRA, um, he probably hadn't gotten around to taking out his distribution yet. So the beneficiary has to take out the original owner's distribution in that year of death. And if you don't know um, about that and you forget to do it, the liability penalty for that is 50% of the required distribution. So that's a Ouch. huge tax penalty. Yes, mm. so you can't afford to let that happen. So not surprisingly, that can cause a problem if somebody dies later in the year. Let's say your father dies on Christmas Day and still hadn't taken the distribution. And you might not even find out that the owner, you know, account hadn't taken this distribution out until next year. The last day of the year is the deadline for making that RMD. Um, so, you know, if the deceased was not age 70 and a half yet, or if it's a Roth IRA, then there's no year of death required distribution. So you're getting out there. If yeah. You're not 70 and I, a half. I have heard the IRS, um, you know, if you, present your case. I mean, if it's something yes. like that and you had five days and you didn't know about it, 
you know, you got to write them a letter and so forth and hopefully get somebody that'll, you know, understand. But Yeah, there's a form you can file with yeah. the IRS and they will give you grace under most of those circumstances. But you got to know to do that, too. Most people don't even know to do yeah, that. That's right. That's mm-hmm. right. So another one here on the list is uh, take the tax break coming to you. So for a state subject to the estate tax. Um, so it's, you know, well over $5 million per person. Um, you know, you will get an income deduction for the estate taxes paid on the account. Taxable income earned uh, is called income in respect of a descendant. So when you take a distribution from an IRA, it is taxable income. But because a person's estate had to pay federal estate tax, you get an income tax deduction for estate taxes that were paid on the IRA. So, you know, this is something, you know, we talk about tax planning. You may want to work with a CPA on some of this as well. It gets kind of complicated. Right. But you just got to understand that if you do have an estate that's significant, that you, know, you could get a tax break for taking money out. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. But of course, there are no estate taxes for, until you're over four, about five and a half million dollars Yeah, it's now. a big number. So it's a really big number for people today. And don't ignore the beneficiary forms. Um, you know, uh, kind of an ambiguous, um, incomplete or, or missing designated beneficiary form can sink an estate. You know, many people assume that they filled out the form correctly at some point. People think they know who their beneficiary is, but often the form really hasn't been completed or is not on record with the custodian. Um, that creates a lot of problems. You know, if, if there is no designated beneficiary form and the account goes into the estate, then the beneficiary will be stuck with the five-year rule, meaning they'll have to, they'll have to take all the distributions, all the money out, and pay tax on it within five years. Um, the simplicity of the form can be misleading as well. You know, just a few pieces of information can direct large sums of money. So you want to be careful with that. You know, one form can take control of millions of dollars, um, whereas the, the trust can be 50 pages long. So it's one simple form makes a big difference, you know, so don't procrastinate um, that. Um, you know, people who don't understand the forms, they, they can uh, get into all kind of legal entanglement. Um, so you want to make sure you have a, a beneficiary form on file for all of your retirement accounts um, and even non-retirement accounts mm-hmm. for that matter. Yeah. <clears throat> um, and uh, also, I mean, improperly drafted trust can be bad news. Um, you know, it, it it is possible to list a trust as the primary beneficiary of an IRA, but it's also possible that will go horribly wrong. So it usually should be avoided. Um, if it's done incorrectly, a trust can be unwittingly limit the options of the beneficiaries. You know, what's worse, if the provisions of the trust aren't carefully drafted, then some custodians won't be able to see through the trust to determine who the qualified beneficiaries are, in which case the accelerated distribution rule will come into play and you'll have to distribute it all within five years and pay tax on all of it. Um, and all the custodians don't see the rules the same way. So you want to be very careful if you're trying to list a trust as a beneficiary. Some custodians are, are more versed on this than others, and the rules are complex surrounding inherited IRAs. Yeah, so you'll want to talk about it with the custodian ahead of time. Plans are great, but only as far as the ability to have them properly implemented. Uh, the problem is, is that a mistake or bad advice made on part of the custodian leaves difficulties for the beneficiary. So without being an expert yourself, there's really no way of knowing if the institution is simply not up to the task or if your IRA issues are not allowed by the IRS. So this is where, you know, consulting some experts in this, it does get complicated. 
Yeah, that's right. In malpractice, unfortunately, it's irreversible. You know, they point out here, you can't argue abatement of a penalty and interest in taxation in an inherited IRA case, is what they're saying. I mean, there's there's no justice um, other than a private letter ruling, according to the experts. And a private letter ruling involves handling the IRS about six to $10,000, waiting six months for an answer. So you certainly don't want to go through that process. So if you're getting some conflicting advice or something seems wrong, you know, don't sign anything. That could lead to, to, to something irreversible. So get a second opinion with somebody with some expertise in the inherited IRA area. Um, it really can be that complicated. Um, so you just want to be careful here, you know, and, and avoid using a trust as a beneficiary to an IRA um, have your IRA go directly to your heirs with contingent beneficiaries listed as well. So you want to be careful of some of these inherited IRA traps. That's the moral of the story here. And that leads us up here to our final thing, which is the prescription of the week. Yeah, this is to uh, resist the goldfish syndrome. The goldfish <clears throat> syndrome. Never heard of this before. Ginger Spreacher in our office is actually going to uh, do the uh, the video of the week for Facebook, and um, she came up with this, and basically it's increasing your cost of living mm. with every pay raise and bonus. So yeah. she goes on to say that goldfish grow to fit the size of their container. I never knew that. I didn't know that either. So, so the goldfish put, syndrome. So you put them in a pond, they grow big. You put them in a uh, bowl, they, bowl yeah. they don't grow at all. How about that? Well, Very I don't know. I think they grow in a bowl to the size of their the bowl. So if you put them in a bigger... <laughs> so they get to be like this huge fish know. inside of a Bowl. I don't know, I think but there's something. Yeah. yeah so anyway, it, it is. Uh, it's it's great because you do see people uh, increasing their co- you know standard of living with pay increases, and if you can kind of cap that, you can then use that additional income to to go fund uh, some of your goals and your values, whether it be uh, emergency funds or retirement or paying off the house early or college. So yeah, goldfish syndrome. Like I like it. that. Yeah, avoid the goldfish syndrome and let your IRA do follow the goldfish syndrome. So let your <laughs> Let your retirement plan automatically increase every year with your with yeah. your with your pay increase. Yeah, that's a good one. Set it up automatic, one percent automatic increase every year until you get to fifteen percent. I love that strategy. Yes, so yeah, it is. That's good. the cure for that. So great prescription of the week. And that brings us to a close for this week's edition of Money MD. Tune in next week to hear more prescriptions for your financial health. Check us out on our website, moneymd.net. Email us your questions at info at moneymd.net or give us a call at Richard Young Associates at 706-739-0725. Thanks for listening. Have a great rest of the week. Have a good one. This program contains general information only and should not be taken as specific investment, tax, or legal advice. This broadcast is not a solicitation for the purchase or sale of any security. SmartVestor Pro is not connected to investment returns. Further information is available by contacting Richard Young Associates, a registered investment advisor. 